Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, cooperators are, um, in any type of case, probably the most difficult types of witnesses to put on. Um, maybe civilian victims and like domestic abuse cases and things like that are, are also very difficult to put on because they have fixed loyalties and, and feelings about the crime. But when it comes to um, uh, most federal crimes, cooperators are very difficult um, because there's always the argument that they are just trying to throw other people under the bus to get a break in their own sentence and therefore shouldn't be trusted. That was Morrison and Forrester partner James Kukios. In this part two of a special two-part podcast series, we take a deep dive into the KT Corp FCPA resolution and the Roger Ung trial. It's a fascinating exploration of two major FCPA events from February 2022. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. And today I have back with me fan favorite James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester. James, first of all, welcome back. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. James, uh, today we're going to take up the firm's always great top 10 international corruption developments, uh, this time for the month of February. And we really had two major uh, events and cases that I wanted to talk about. Uh, over the course of this podcast. The first was the uh, KT Corporation FCPA settlement. Um, This one had some pretty wild facts, but at the end of the day, I thought there were some pretty significant uh, lessons learned for the compliance professional and for corporate compliance programs. Uh, You want to tell us about KT Corp? So this was uh, uh, notable for, if for no other reason, that was the first corporate FCPA resolution of 2022. It was an SEC only one, uh, but still very important because it kicked off the year in terms of uh, corporate um, FCPA enforcement. And basically what the SEC alleged was that uh, KT Corporation, which is um, based in Korea, South Korea, um, but is considered a U.S. issuer, uh, agreed to pay $6.3 million to resolve FCPA accounting charges relating to allegations that have made improper payments to Korean and Vietnamese government officials. Um, According to the SEC, for nearly a decade, the company provided gifts and illegal political contributions to government officials in Korea who had influence over its business and to Vietnamese officials in connection with soliciting business from government customers. In Korea, the money for these payments allegedly came from a slush fund of approximately $1.3 million, um, which was created in several different ways. At first, according to the SEC, the company inflated bonuses to its executives. And then the executives would return that money to the company's then executive officer in cash And that cash was either deposited in an executive's personal bank account or kept in a safe in the company's office. Um, So very interesting and complicated, you know, bonuses and cash and moving around. But then later they decided to generate these funds through gift cards that were converted to cash. The SEC also alleged that at the urging of South Korea's um, office of the president, that the company made over $1.6 million in quote-unquote charitable donations and quote-unquote sponsorships to three sports or cultural organizations and hired two advertising executives. Um, so very interesting, you know, in Korea, we've got issues about um, 
Charitable Nations sponsorships, which the SEC is often very interested in because they see a lot of potential for abuse with those, that these would be actually things of, um, even if the money did not go to um, the official, that they would be things of value to the official. And here you also have perhaps it, the money did go to the official because it was um, third parties that he, that the, or the presidential office um, uh, recommended. And then you've got gift cards too, which is always just very, and bonuses, which are just very interesting and, and compliance issues as well. If we turn to Vietnam, the SEC alleged that the company generated cash by paying quote unquote rebates to a third party construction company taking it cash advances on credit cards and making payments for quote unquote consulting services to a third party agent hired through a consortium partner to obtain government contracts and accelerate payments from the government. And the SEC uh, uh, wraps it all up by saying that the company failed to properly maintain accurate records or a system of internal accounting controls, um, which violated the FCPA's accounting provisions. So very interesting, you've kind of got a hodgepodge, a potpourri, if you will, of various different things. You've got gift cards, you've got charitable donations, you've got sponsorships, you've got rebates, you've got cash advances like credit cards, you've got consulting payments to third parties. So basically any, uh, any uh, of the many ways that the government alleges that um, companies generate money to pay bribes, uh, you've got them all almost here in this uh, KT Corporation resolution. Interestingly, though, it's it's an SEC-only resolution, and it's an accounting provisions one, which makes me think that there is either some lack of jurisdiction or maybe some hole in the evidence that this money um, could not be shown to either go to a public official or some other element of the FCPA anti-bribery charge because um, SEC only brought it as an accounting violation. So there were a couple of uh, interesting facets that I found you could very much use for lessons learned. Um, the overriding one for me, James, was culture. Uh, and here um, we had a pretty corrupt culture because we had the CEO leading the charge with his own slush funds uh, to pay bribes. Um, and I'd like to tie that into uh, the least beginning with the Lisa Monaco speech from October of last year, where the DOJ has made clear that culture is something they will assess. And we have seen that um, in uh, several enforcement actions that we'll probably talk about in subsequent podcasts. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're in compliance, uh, be advised the DOJ is going to look at your culture and they may look at it in a more detailed way than they have in the past. The other was there was a hiring component, and the hiring uh, component here was close associates of government officials. This was a little bit different than um, the sons, daughters, princes, and princesslings that we'd seen uh, in uh, the past years. So that I thought that was significant for uh, compliance professionals to understand. Uh, next really was uh, business ventures. Because particularly in Vietnam, there was a consortium involved, and it was clear there were corrupt parties in the consortium. And I think most compliance practitioners understand the risks of a joint venture, but they sometimes don't consider compliance risk in other types of business ventures. And certainly a consortium is one. It's used in multiple industries from tech to construction to energy 
So if you, you as a compliance professional need to understand what your business guys are out there doing, and they may be structuring things in a way that joint ventures automatically go to the compliance function for review. But if it's a different type of venture, well, that may not kick in uh, to your automatic review. And then finally, I wanted to have you say a few words about jurisdiction. Um, Some commentators question, how could a private Korean company, South Korean company, be subject to the SEC and and really remind people, um, particularly foreign countries out there, companies out there who have American depository uh, register receipts or shares, what are they and why are they so critical to FCPA jurisdiction? Absolutely. I, I just want to point out, Tom, to your point, you, you raised two additional points that I raised. And I think KT Corp just has that whole potpourri of, you know, if you want to look at how many different ways uh, companies can get in trouble, I think KT Corp is a great, great opinion just to read because it has so many issues that for you to uh, look at your own company and say, do we do any of these things? Are we, are we, uh, mitigating this risk appropriately can you know how can we do this so i think it's a it's a really interesting even though it's a relatively small resolution um it's got a lot going on that i think is is very much um worth reading so back to your your question about the um sec jurisdiction yeah um a, according to the definition of issuer kt corporation was an was an issuer in the us and that is because um it's american depository shares are registered with the SEC, um, and they trade on the New York Stock Exchange. And then KT also has to file periodic reports, including Form 20F, with the commission uh, pursuant to the Exchange Act and related rules. And those things combine to make, even though it's a a South um, Korean company and it doesn't issue shares directly on, uh, it has the ADRs uh, and files the reports, it makes it an issuer under the SEC. You know, whenever, whenever I analyze um, SEC jurisdiction. I always go to my SEC compliance or corporate guys and say, "Hey, you know, let's let's take a look at this company and make sure, you know, is it an issuer um, or is it not? Because um, it can be a very technical analysis, and I think it's really helpful to get that kind of um, viewpoint that this is what they do as as a living. You know, I, I I can come up with my own opinions, but to get that double um, double check, I think is very useful because. You'd be surprised. Sometimes you don't think you're an issuer, um, and it turns out you are. Um, so it's very important to to really analyze that issue closely before making any decisions. The bottom, at the end of the day, of course, the the same glib answer is don't pay bribes. Um, but but in the meantime, when you're trying to, if something happens and trying to analyze your liability, it's really important to say, you know, could I somehow be considered an issuer under the FCPA? We'll be right back with more from James Kukios after a message from our sponsor. The next thing I wanted to take up, and frankly, I've been wanting to visit with you for some time on this, is the Roger Ung trial. Uh, A major FCPA prosecution, uh, conviction by the DOJ. Um, But I wanted to maybe take things in a little bit different direction and not go too much into the specific tactics. Uh, But really, what does it mean to go to trial in the FCPA unit, in the fraud section? You know, in in the Department of Justice, uh, the you've been to trial on behalf of the department. Uh, you've shared some of those stories on prior podcasts. Um, 
when because there's so few FCPA cases go to trial, if it's not successful, there's sometimes withering criticism of the department uh, or the prosecutors or perhaps both. But this seemed to me to be a, a major win. And part of that was because of the cooperating witness uh, for the prosecution, I thought was one of the worst witnesses I'd ever read about. I didn't get to see it live. But I maybe wanted to start with when you have a cooperating witness who does have facts that support your case, but is either because of temperament, because of what he's done or whatever, or she could be so odious to a jury. Um, how do you bolster that testimony? Do you use cooperating evidence? Do you bring in data facts? Um, how do you kind of approach that from a prosecutorial perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, cooperators are, um, in any type of case, probably the most difficult types of witnesses to put on. Um, maybe civilian victims and like domestic abuse cases and things like that are, are also very difficult to put on because they have mixed loyalties and, and feelings about the crime. But when it comes to um, uh, most federal crimes, cooperators are very difficult um, because there's always the argument that they are just trying to throw other people under the bus to get a break in their own sentence and therefore shouldn't be trusted. In fact, there's jury instructions that say, you know, the jury can should consider that about whether there's any motivation by a cooperating witness to, to not tell the truth because of that. And so you always have to be careful whether it's a narcotics case, a FCPA case, or any other kind of case. Cooperators are always very difficult. You know, when I was a prosecutor, and this includes in FCPA trials, um, we'd always try to downplay the importance of the cooperator. Um, it was a very standard line where we would say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you don't even need that witness. All that witness did was tell you everything you already saw with your own eyes. You saw the, you saw the um, financial transactions. You saw the text messages. You saw this, that, and the other thing. And we could have just left it there. Um, and done nothing else. But we brought in this guy, um, this cooperator, just to confirm what you already saw. And so that was the tactic number one that I always tried to use, which was to downplay the importance of the, um, of the cooperator. Of course, the defense has the exact opposite. They always want to call that cooperator the star witness, which they did in this trial many, many, many times. Uh, kept calling uh, Mr. Leisner the, the government star witness. And the defense wants to make it so that it rises and falls in the cooperator. And um, therefore, if you don't believe the cooperator, the whole case falls apart. Um, and so that goes to your next uh, point, Tom. Cor corroboration is key. I mean, it really is the most important thing you can do because, yeah, they can lie about anything. Anybody can lie about anything, especially when you're motivated to lie, for example, to get a cut in your sentence. Um, and so to be able to say, uh, if somebody says, I was at this meeting on January 1st, to be able to show things like calendar entries, um, flights, uh, hotel accommodations, contemporaneous notes, photographs, uh, uh, building entrance and exit records, whatever it can be to try to corroborate those statements, uh, it makes a huge difference uh, because then it's not just a, a lying liar who says it, but it's a guy who may be suspect, but you know, there's, there, we can actually see objective evidence that what he's saying is true. And I think in this case, there's a lot of um, uh, financial transactions, movement of money, things like that, which tended to corroborate the cooperator. 
Um, the defendant, of course, had an alternative explanation that the money he got, which was quite sizable, was was an independent investment that his mother-in-law did. Um, but obviously, the jury felt like there was enough corroborating evidence that that was actually money coming to him for the bribe scheme. So that's the most, uh, you know, the, the cooperator can be key. And, and as I understand from this case, this cooperator really was key because he was really the glue that um, put all this together and to show that um, Roger Ng was involved in a bribe scheme and not and not something else. I'll, I'll say the other thing I would do, um, Tom, is I, I used to, as much as possible, you try to put the cooperators in the middle of the trial. Um, I, I used to call it pre-corroboration. You know, you get a lot of people out there first who are talking about something. Um, you know, you show the, the money movement first. Um, you show the, the whatever it is first. And so that when when the cooperator comes up and says, and then he paid me $100 million, or then we, you know, then we paid a bribe to this third party, the jury's already familiar with it. They've already heard about it. So like, okay, um, you know, I don't have to just take this guy's word for it. I already heard that that payment was made, or I already heard that that third party was incorporated um, for that purpose. Um, so to try to do that, and then try to get, you know, try to minimize that person's um, time on the stand as much as possible. Um, you know, we had a cooperating witness in, in an in a FCPA trial where I had no doubt he was telling the truth. Everything he said was, co was corroborated, but he just wasn't a very good communicator. Uh, and so my goal there was to just try to get the, you know, 10 things out of him that I needed to get out of him that I couldn't get from anybody else really was to confirm what they saw. Hey, when you got that money, what was that for? That was a bribe payment. Um, and just have him say those few things and then get them down. Don't rely on him to tell the whole story. Again, this one seemed a little bit difficult. Um, I know they had a lot of witnesses and I wasn't there either, um, but it really does seem like the, the cooperator here was a pretty vital part of it. And so I think DOJ did a really good job, at least from the outside, corroborating that witness and explaining to the jury why it wasn't just the cooperating witnesses testimony that proved the defendant's um, guilt, but it all kind of added together and supported itself. So interesting case. And, 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 you know, this case also, one last thing I'll, I'll say about this cooperator, this cooperator flipped down. Uh, and that is as a prosecutor, something that you don't generally want to happen. You know, when you're building a case, you want to flip up. You want to get the lower level people to cooperate against the higher level people. But in this case, you actually had the higher level person cooperating down on the lower level. person. That is, uh, it's pretty unusual. Um, that doesn't usually happen. Um, I think I had it sort of once in a robbery case I did where the head of the gang, um, robbery gang, cooperated against the people uh, uh, in his gang. Didn't like doing it, but it just sort of, that's how it shook out. Um, and ordinarily you don't want to do that for many reasons, but it, it, one of them is jury appeal. You know, why does it, it's not going to look as good to a jury to hear that you, you know, the, the head of the scheme is cooperating against his minions. Um, and, and I may be understating somewhat or overstating the situation here somewhat, but it does seem like they flipped down. Um, and that's generally not, um, something you want to do. When I was in law school, uh, I had Alan Dershowitz as, as my criminal law professor. And he said, if you're ever going to commit a crime, make sure to commit a crime with someone more important than you, so you can co cooperate against him or her. And uh, here, it almost you had the reverse. You had the person who seemed to be a, a higher performer or a guy higher up the totem pole uh, cooperating against the guy lower down. So unusual circumstance and even more challenging.
That really leads into the next area I wanted to, to use this case to explore with you, which is the kind of internal DOJ process. Uh, for those who don't know, the numerous uh, line attorneys in the FCPA unit, there's an assistant head of the unit, there's a head of the unit, then there's the fraud section it sits in, uh, then the fraud section uh, sits in the criminal division, uh, and then you get to the level of, uh, I guess, at the, the level of the fraud section, you get your political appointees uh, who are overseeing career uh, prosecutors such as you were at one time. Uh, how do you make, uh, uh, how do you go through the presentation? You you work the case up? Do you work with a, a prosecutor in the in the jurisdiction you're going to bring the case? For instance, Ong was in the Eastern District of uh, New York. How does that process work internally, James? Yeah, it's it's very complicated. So, um, as a as a uh, starting point, the fraud section has to be involved in all FCPA prosecutions and investigations in the country. That's in the Justice Manual. So, no FCPA case can go forward without um, a fraud section um, prosecutor on the case. You know, when I started, we only had three of us doing it full time. There's now 39, but that's still um, not that many people compared to the nationwide and really international jurisdiction that the, the um, FCPA unit has. And so it's still very difficult for fraud to do cases on their own. And so typically they will um, pair up with the U.S. Attorney's Office um, in the jurisdiction where they're bringing their case, which is great. It's a force multiplier. It's people who are, uh, you know, we may have been experts in the FCPA, but they're experts in their judges and their juries and the local procedures. Um, and so it, it, t- it tends to be, it can be a very good partnership to have an FCPA unit prosecutor uh, along with an AUSA. Uh, and that's typically how DOJ does it now. Um, in some smaller districts, the U.S. Attorney's offices don't have the resources to do that. And there are some districts that just say, like, look, you guys are the FCPA guys. You just do it yourself uh, and we'll provide whatever support you need. But we're not going to be involved in this. And that, that does happen. But increasingly rarely that um, that happens. But when you get the U.S. Attorney's Office, Tom, not only do you have the hierarchy that you talked about at Main Justice in D.C., but you also have the U.S. Attorney's Office hierarchy as well. And so every FCPA charge has to go through two lines of review, the U.S. Attorney's Office line of review and the um, criminal division line of review. So it can be difficult. It can be um, uh, there can be, you know, differences of opinion in the two offices about what to do and things like that. I think generally speaking, when it comes to the law, the U.S. Attorney's offices tend to defer to the FCPA unit on the reading of the statute and things like that, um, but they'll take a much more um, uh, aggressive posture on what their judges and what their juries will, will demand. So that can be very difficult in, in, in terms of getting those through. Um, you know, it's interesting now, you're, you're completely right that there are still few FCPA cases that go to trial relative to other kinds of violations. Um, and there's a lot more there now than there were when I was doing it um, uh, through a, a very dedicated effort over the last decade plus to bring more individual prosecutions. That's one of the reasons I was hired from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami into the fraud section was to bring more, me personally, um, was to bring more individual prosecutions and to try those cases, which I was fortunate enough to do both of those things. Um, but you know, over the years, the FCPA unit is really focused on getting more and more individuals prosecuted, which has led to more and more trials. So they're not as much of unicorns as they used to be, 
but they're still not very common when you say compared to a gun case or a drug case. And the thing is, if you're a, an AUSA and you have a felon in possession case, or you have a small possession with intent to distribute narcotics case, if you lose those cases, it's not the end of the world. It's not great. Nobody ever wants to lose. Um, but cases tend to go to trial because they have issues. You know, there's a bad witness or there's a lack of evidence in some element or just, you know, the defendant is sympathetic. There's, there's a reason, you know, 95% of cases plead out. The ones that go to trial are usually the more difficult ones. And so if you lose a gun case, if you lose a drug case or an immigration case, it's not the end of the day. Nobody says we have to stop prosecuting felons for possessing firearms. Nobody says we're going to end the war on drugs because you lose a uh, possession with intent to distribute case. FCPA cases, there have been times where people have said, we need to wrap up this program because you lost a trial. And, you know, going back to the SHOT Show case in the early 2010s, it was almost that feeling. Um, you know, there was a very, there's a wave of kind of a aggressive prosecutions, including a sting, um, the SHOT Show. And you talk about cooperators and cooperators falling apart. You know, I think some people would say that's what happened in that case. The, the judge didn't like the cooperator. And, and so the case didn't go very well for DOJ. But when we didn't win those cases, there was almost a thought, well, we can't win these cases. Um, juries don't like them. We can't bring them. Maybe the FCPA unit is not you know, qualified to do trials. And there was a real sense that the FCPA program was going to end uh, because of that. Uh, and then I did the Eskenazi trial. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of pressure on, the, on that trial because it really was very much, okay, you got to prove, uh, you Kukios, you got to go prove that we could actually bring these cases and win them uh, at trial. And we did. And it was a great case. I mean, we had so much evidence. Um, we, we had cooperators at every stage of the um, bribery scheme. We had corroborating documents. We had um, eyewitnesses who could corroborate things. We, we had, we just had so much great evidence and we were able to win that case and sort of gave us a reprieve for a while. Um, and I think put the, put the um, confidence and faith back into the program that, you know what, we can bring these cases and we can win them, but they're complicated. Um, there's a lot of weird elements in the FCPA, as you know, well, Tom, <laughs> and our, our listeners know well as, also, we've talked about some of them, jurisdiction, you know, how do you prove that, uh, intent, you know, it's uh, um, foreign official. How do you prove foreign official? All these things kind of sound easy, but when you actually sit down and try to prove the case, like, I don't know how I'm going to do that. So in the Eskenazi case, for example, you know, we were confident that the people who were uh, the Haiti Teleco people were foreign officials, um, but how do you prove that to a jury? And our initial we actually asked the judge to take judicial notice of that. We said, judge, we think this is a question of law that you can decide. And he said, I'm not touching that. You got to prove that to the jury. That's a question of fact. And so we had to figure out kind of on the fly, how do we prove this element um, to a jury? Now, luckily my trial partner had been thinking about this for a long time. And so all the arguments we had made with the judge about why this is a question of law, we then made to the, to the um, jury and the 11th circuit eventually agreed with, that we did it uh, in, in the right way. Um, but there's all these strange things. I mean, in, in the UN trial, they had to explain jurisdiction because, um, it really seemed and the defendant argued that a lot of the stuff, you know, to the extent it happened in the United States, it happened in Manhattan, which is the Southern district of New York, not the Eastern district of New York. 
And they had to argue, yeah, but, you know, to get from the airports in New York to the Southern District of New York, you have to, you have to go through the Eastern District of New York. Or for that wire to go through, you know, has to cross the, the waters to go into uh, uh, from EDNY. Just a lot of like these very technical questions and they can be very difficult. I think people don't fully appreciate those until you're actually in front of a jury trying to, trying to prove that. So they're, they're fairly rare. They're very difficult, no matter what anybody might think, until you actually have to sit down and prove one. And so if you lose one, it's not all that surprising theoretically because they're difficult. And a lot of the evidence is overseas and you often have gaps in the evidence because of that. Um, but if, if you lose one, it almost seems like, uh, you know, the end of the world, I think less so these days because there are more happening. Um, and so you can lose one now and then and not have people say, well, we've got to shut this whole thing down. But I still think it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of stress to continue to win these cases because they are few, relatively few and far between. And so each one takes on an outsized importance. Um, so that's, those are a lot of thoughts, Tom. I hope I answered your question, but it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, more and more people are trying these and they're, and they're going to trial more. And I think people are becoming better at them and more sophisticated, but there was a real time where if we lost the FCPA trial, FCPA was going to shut, it was going to shut down. Um, I'm, not, I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. And a lot of that does have to do, just get back to one of your points, um, the po political aspects of it. You know, most people, uh, at DOJ, whether it's the U.S. Attorney's Office or in the fraud section, and they're they're career professionals. This is you know this is what we did, um, and, and we didn't have to worry about politics. Um, but the people at the very top are um, political appointees. So the AAG for the Criminal Division and the U.S. Attorney, um, they are, and and you know nobody wants to to have that blemish, um, and you don't want it as a career prosecutor either. But I think you know there may be times where the political appointees have a different time frame or a different perspective um, about what this means. I think very easily when we were back in the shot show days, we could say, look, we're, you know, we'll just go get them again. A lot of us were, you know, from the U.S. attorney's office, lost cases, drug cases, immigration cases, but then just fought another day and, and won far more than we lost. But we had a longer horizon than maybe some of the political folks did. And it was maybe seen as a black eye to them. So there was a lot of, in back then, um, re reassuring that had to be done, um, especially to the, to, to the political folks. And I think the way we did that was by winning. Um, but yeah, there's always there's always a, um, an aspect where you have to convince folks. On the other hand, you know they have a they have, the political folks also have a very valuable perspective as well because line attorneys can get very complacent, uh, maybe not always think things through through certain perspectives. And so the political folks also add quite a bit as well, but it can be very difficult for them to lose a trial, um, especially in a high profile. Like well, Jens, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you again. We've been visiting with Morrison and Forrester partner, James Kukios, and he's been talking about uh, two of the top 10 international anti-corruption developments that appeared in the firm's February newsletter. We're, of course, going to link to that in the show notes. I would encourage you to to check out the full newsletter. There's some other great stories we weren't able to get to on this podcast. James, I wanted to thank you again. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. That was part two of a special two-part podcast series with James Kukios. In this podcast, we took a look at the Morrison and Forrester Top 10 International Anti-Corruption Developments from February 2022. We previously looked at 
the January newsletter in part one. So check out both of those newsletters. I've also linked to James Kukios on the Morrison and Forrester website. I hope you'll join us again for next week's episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.